Did you know that athletic clothing sales in America are skyrocketing? That I want to show you a graphic here. This is some of the stock increases just in recent months of what has happened in athletic clothing sales. That athletic clothing sales have become from a small industry to $100 billion worth of sales every year in the United States. In five years, they're expecting athletic clothing sales to double and to be over $200 billion in sales. This is impressive, not just in and of its own, but particularly when you compare it to other industries. I read an article recently where they talked about one particular athletic clothing store. It's called Lululemon. And this particular store has the third highest profit per square foot of any store in anywhere. That it's only behind Tiffany and Company and Apple. My friends, that's some really expensive spandex. <laughs> you just need to know that I used to make fun of people who wore Lululemon clothing. I particularly teased men who would buy Lululemon clothing. And there's an elder in the church, a woman who works for Lululemon here. And a little while ago, she sent me at the office a men's workout Lululemon set of clothes. And I never want to take them off. <laughs> in fact, if we go back to robes, I'm wearing nothing but Lululemon clothes underneath those pastoral robes. Well, here's what's interesting to me about this, because you might be wondering, why on earth is he talking about this? What's interesting to me is as the sales of athletic clothing have been going up and up and up, do you know what's not going up? The amount of time that we're exercising. <laughs> we're buying more and more athletic clothes, but we're actually reporting spending less time in actual exercise. In other words, we like the way that the clothes make us feel. We like the way that the athletic clothes make us look. We just don't like doing what it takes to be more athletic. They actually have a term for this. It's called athleisure. <laughs> you got to think about that for a little bit, right? I'm athletic, but I'm not really doing anything. <laughs> I'm working out but not too hard. <laughs> Athleisure. And the question for me is, do you think that this can happen in other industries? Do you think that this can happen when it comes to the industry that's called faith? You know, I like going to church, and I like the way that going to church makes me look and makes me feel, but I'm not becoming more Christ-like. Or I like being a part of my Bible study or my group, but being a part of that, even though it makes me feel good, it makes me look good, it's not actually making me become more loving. I like being known as a Christian, if you will, wearing a Christian outfit to be known in that way. But I'm not actually becoming more and more into the image of the one who made me. I think athleisure can happen in the Christian faith. In fact, uh, one of the just dearest pastors of the last 30 years is a man by the name of Eugene Peterson. He wrote a paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, and as a pastor for over 30 years, he preached lots and lots and lots of sermons. And you know, he said the hardest sermons that he ever had to write were the sermons on Easter Sunday morning. 
And you would kind of be surprised by that, I think, sitting where you are, that there's such richness in the music, there's such beauty and importance in this part of the Bible and these stories, and yet he said the reason that it was a struggle was that people often come to God thinking that God is going to meet them on their terms and not the other way around. He puts it this way, the Easter resurrection is the dividing point between a consumer religion and a gracious gospel. This is the event that separates us into two groups, the people who want God to give them something and the people who find out what God wants to give to them. I want, you, I want to invite you today to do something. I want you to set aside your preconceived notions. I want you to set aside what you think you want from God in coming to Easter today. Because the gospel story is not about us going to God, it's about God coming to us. And God, I don't think, meets us on our terms. I think he meets us on his, whether you're looking for him or not. I want to enter into this today by jumping into a story. It's a story from the Bible, from Luke chapter 7. It takes place in this setting. This is the Megiddo Valley. There is a small town that's about five minutes from where Jesus grew up that's called Nain. Nain in Hebrew means pleasant. It means beautiful. In other words, think of this as kind of the California wine country of where Jesus was. It's this pastoral landscape that's at the foot of some beautiful rolling hills and mountains. Everything about life in this little area was quaint, pleasant, and beautiful. And yet in that place, something deeply unpleasant is about to happen. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her, and when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier that they were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. And they were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This is not the Easter story. It's like a tremor before the great earthquake that is Easter. It's also like a collision, for there are these two processionals, these two parades that couldn't be any more different from one another. The procession that's heading into the city is led by Jesus, and he's early on in his ministry, and all the hopes, all the enthusiasm, all the dreams of this one that they have longed for and waited for. Could he really be the Messiah? They've seen him heal people. They've seen the wisdom in his teaching, and he's entering into the city, and he's got a large crowd of people behind him, and yet as they're about to enter into the town gate, all of a sudden coming out is a very different processional. This is a funeral processional. And at the back of this funeral processional is a woman. And not just any woman, she's a widow. We know from the story that she's lost her father, that she's lost her husband, and now she has lost her only son. And besides just the emotional tailspin that that would be, 
It's even more severe in that day and age. As a woman, she had no ability to be able to provide for herself. She lost her social security. She lost her 401k. She lost her current form of income. She lost everything. And this text asks us a question. When the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into contact with the worst that life can throw at you, what happens? Instead of doing what you would expect would be to just kind of respectfully kind of move to the side to let the funeral procession get going, Jesus does something very different. He sees this woman. He has compassion on her. His heart goes out to her. And he says something that is shocking to us. He says, don't cry. Can you imagine the audacity of that? There is only one who has the authority in a moment like that to say, don't cry. Jesus just broke every rule and pastoral training that they tell you not to invalidate someone's feelings. But then Jesus even steps forward more and he comes to the stretcher that the dead boy is lying on and doing something that a rabbi in his day and age would never do. He reached out and he touched the pallet that he's on making him ritualistically unclean. Jesus would have to go into a spiritual form of detox for what he was about to do because you never came into contact with dead bodies as a religious leader. And he touches it and he says, young man, get up. Without any mumbo jumbo, without any fanfare, all of a sudden the dead boy sits up and I love how the text gives the detail that he begins to talk. It was almost like he sits up and it was like, oh yeah, and there's another thing. Wouldn't you love to know what they were talking about? Here's what you need to realize. Jesus never met a funeral that he didn't ruin. Not then, not today. And maybe the most beautiful part of the story is that it says that Jesus gave him back to his mother. Earlier in the Easter story that Pastor Chuck read, you might have heard that they said this again, they have taken away my Lord. I'll bet you know what it's like to have something precious, something beautiful, something pleasant taken away from you. They've taken away my relationship. They've taken away my marriage. They've taken away my job. They've taken away my family. I've taken away my friend. I'll bet you know what it's like to lose something. Here's what the gospel declares. Even when you're not looking for God, God comes looking for you. And he's going to give you back what you have lost. And not just what you've lost, but a whole new life altogether. And that you and I can start to live in that Easter promise, that reality right now. You don't have to wait till after you die. Kelly and I have a good friend in Northern California by the name of Renee Schlepfer. He's the pastor of the Twin Lakes Church. We have spoken at conferences together. He's spoken at my church. I've preached at his church. And uh, we got to know each other by being pastors in California together. You should pray for Renee because he has to serve people in this location. This is Santa Cruz, California. This can't be good for your soul to serve Jesus in this place. It'll make you soft. And that's why we moved to Atlanta because we knew that Newport Beach wasn't good for us in the long run. Didn't want heaven to be a letdown, that kind of thing. 
And so Pastor Rene serves up in Santa Cruz, and he's got this guy in his church who's a relatively new Christian by the name of Dan Adranya. And Dan's life went from pleasantness and beauty to tragedy in just a moment. It all started one Christmas Eve where Dan had this cough that he just couldn't shake, and he just... <coughs> kept coughing. He couldn't get rid of it, couldn't get rid of it. And finally on Christmas Eve, his daughter said, dad, you really need to go get that checked out. He didn't want to because it was Christmas, but he finally acquiesced that he felt badly enough in order to go to the emergency room. And he's waiting in the emergency room waiting area when all of a sudden the cough overtakes him and he passes out in the waiting room. And Dan doesn't wake up as he slides into a coma for two months. He had a rare form of a viral pneumonia that was mixed with a bacterial infection that was commingled with some diabetes and a little thing called gangrene. He coded three times, they resuscitated him. And in order to keep him alive, they systematically had to remove certain parts of his body. First his right toes, then his left toes, then his left foot, then his right foot, and then his right leg, and then his left leg. They had to remove a spot on the back of his head. They had to remove a spot on his face near his nose. And getting the trach tube in and out, they accidentally lacerated his vocal cords. And imagine going into the hospital waking up two months later and looking down and seeing that you have no legs. How would this test your faith? How would this work with an athleisure kind of religion? And so in March, the pastor Renee got the call and pastor went into the hospital, rushed over and went into the room and pastor Renee said, I'm so sorry, Dan. And Dan said, you know, pastor, I woke up, I looked down, and I discovered that I'm not half the man that I used to be. <laughs> and Renee's like, what, excuse me? The spark of that joy and the bedrock of his faith was challenged but not obliterated. And sure, there were moments when he grieved. Sure, there were moments that were difficult and struggle. But Dan literally lives each day putting one foot in front of the other because he was fitted for these prosthetic legs. And sometimes because when he wears pants, you can't tell that the prosthetics that he, that he has kind of artificial legs, this kind of gets Dan into trouble with his playful spirit. He came up one Sunday after church and he said, Pastor, I got to tell you something that happened to me when I was at Great Adventure this weekend. Great Adventure is one of the Six Flags parks that's in Northern California. And Dan decided to ride this ride. It's called Invertigo. And what you need to know as background on this story is that this ride is not one of those slow roller coasters where you go kind of march up the hill and then you go fast. It's one of those rides that shoots you out like a slingshot right out of the gate. The other thing that you need to realize about this ride is that it goes all the way through it, and then it comes to the end of the ride where it dead ends suddenly, and then you go backwards the same track all the way through it. The other thing that you need to realize is that this is the boarding mechanism for Invertigo. You're facing other people, and 
You might be seated with people you know, you might be seated with people you don't know, and your legs are dangling. But don't get ahead with me in the story. And so Dan gets on this, he gets paired with this little fourth or fifth grade girl that he's never met before in his life. He's got his pants on and he's like, hi, how are you doing? And she's like, creepy old guy, staying far away, puts the restraint back in. And as she puts the restraint back on, they launch out and they start going and Dan's legs bend above his head at a biologically impossible angle. And as they're going on the ride, he's going, with his legs up by his ears. And as they start to make their way through all the twists and the turns and the loops and the barrel rolls, that Dan's legs start to loosen up a little bit. And then they start to spin next to him like pinwheels, like Roadrunner in those old cartoons. And this little girl in front of him is like, oh my gosh. And when the ride comes to a screeching stop that they come to a stop at the top of the hill before it goes backwards that he's got so much momentum and his legs have loosened up so much that each leg launches into the clear blue sky like a Scud missile. <laughs> Torpedo launch one, go! Torpedo launch one, two, go! Can you imagine showing up at Six Flags and you're like, I don't know, what do you want to ride? I don't know, what do you want to ride? Let's go on, on Vertigo and you watch limbs flying off of it. <laughs> no, let's not do that. But now that they have to go back through the track, Dan's going backwards and his pant legs are empty and they start flapping at the girl's face that he's never met before like pennants in a stiff breeze. And at this point, this girl is horrified and she's grabbing her own legs and she's yelling, no, no. The ride comes to a stop. The restraint goes up. Dan's not going anywhere until somebody gets his legs. And the girl screams as she shrieks away. And Pastor Renee's like, Dan, Dan, why didn't you stop her? Why didn't you say something? She probably didn't know you had prosthetics. She's probably still in therapy. And Dan said, oh, Pastor, I tried, but I was laughing too hard. Would that have been your reaction to what just happened in that moment? Dan has this bedrock conviction that he doesn't just have the body that he has, that his body's going to be renewed, it's going to be redeemed, that all things are going to be made good again in Christ. And he lives his life that way with this contagious Easter joy in spite of the unpleasantness in spite of the brokenness, in spite of the tragedy. It wasn't much longer later before Renee was asked to do Dan's wedding. And right before they're about to go into the wedding, Dan says, Pastor, I need to tell you something. And Renee said, what? And he said, Pastor, I think I'm getting cold feet. (laughs) He just doesn't stop. This is a picture of Dan and what he really loves to do. He works with an organization called Wheels for the World. He partners a lot with Joni and friends, Joni Erickson Tata. 
and his deepest passion is to fly to emerging countries and to help to pick up people off of the ground who have never lived above the dignity of crawling in the dirt, to talk about physically and emotionally what does it mean to move ahead, and then also to talk about his faith, to talk about how this is not the end of the story, that in the collision of the gospel and the collision of the tragedy of our lives, that no matter what life can throw at you, that the gospel always prevails. This is an image of an eight-year-old boy. His name is Brock McCann. The last funeral that I did when I was in Southern California was for him. He was riding his bike home, only lived a few blocks away. He was at this intersection when a trash truck that was behind in its route didn't notice a little boy crossing the street with his bicycle. His family went into an absolute dark place. And as we ministered together, we looked at this story of Luke 7, of the boy who was raised from the dead at Nain. And a conviction started to grow in that family, a conviction that they weren't going to shrink back from the despair of the streets, of the tragedy of what had happened. Instead, that as they got ready for the memorial service, that they were going to take the streets back. They hired a New Orleans jazz band, and they processed all of them, children, adults, to testify to the goodness and the greatness of God. Because when the procession of the gospel runs into the processions of death, we know that God can make everything beautiful again. Jesus gives it back. But you can't come as a consumer. It's not about Jesus making your life a little better. It's about God restoring your life, giving you a whole new life altogether. And so maybe you've come today and you're kind of a truth be told and an athleisure Christian, that your faith is really more about the label, the look, the feel, than it is about the bedrock of Easter joy. I'm here to tell you that there's another way to live, a way that is above any circumstance, and that God has come to help and to meet you, but he meets you on his terms, and so let us pray. Our loving God and Father, we confess that we only want to come to you with our own expectations, our own limitations, with our own ideas. And yet you radically reorient what it means to be a disciple by meeting us even in the most tragic of circumstances. Lord, help us to be more like Dan, to have a joy that comes from deep within us, that regardless of what happens to us, we know that you will make everything beautiful again. Thank you, God, for giving it back, for restoring families, relationships, and that we don't have to wait until after we die to start sharing in that life right now. And so I pray that you will help us to live differently, to not be athleisure Christians, and to find our true hope, our true joy, our true passion, our true life 
in you and in you alone. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.